so normally my broad stroke high level advice is that choosing a lumbar spinal fusion or making deciding whether to get it done or not done is like trying to get married you know if you're in doubt don't do it thanks for joining me on the rheumatology republic in conversation podcast i'm your host lincoln tracy The number of spinal fusions being performed in Australia has increased significantly over the past two decades. Some surgeons swear by the procedure, while others feel there isn't enough evidence to recommend its usage. Spinal fusions are performed for many different reasons, such as when physical trauma fractures or dislocates the spine, or to help correct scoliosis in children. But the greatest number of fusions are done for degenerative conditions of the spine. Today, I'm speaking with two experts on the topic of spinal fusions, including when they should be considered, and why we're seeing such a large increase in the number of these procedures. Our first guest is Dr. Ashish Devan, Director of the Spine Service at St. George Hospital in New South Wales. He feels there are several boxes that need to be ticked before considering a spinal fusion. Usually, when we talk about the symptom complexes in patients in whom spinal fusion has to be considered. Uh, One considers unremittent recalcitrant back pain of at least six months duration. So these patients don't have any other serious issues like tumor or significant pressure on what we call the cauda equina. They don't have bowel bladder issues, but they have this unremittent back pain, which is affecting their quality of life, not just at the workplace, but also with social interaction and with simple day-to-day living. Number two, the intensity and frequency. And number three is how much disability is that causing? And finally, number four, that simple measures like exercises, simple injections, acupuncture, and everything else that people try that they have failed And there is a fifth dimension to the requirement. What is the patient's own desire? You know, what is their own feeling? What is their approach towards surgery? Dr. Diwan says it's rare for patients with back pain to jump straight to surgery. By the time I, as a surgeon, get to see these patients, they have already gone through the gamut of treatment. But in my practice, which is predominantly focused on the aging or the degenerating spine, or even the developing spine, the focus is always to revisit all those non-operative treatments before we consider them for surgery. Patients react differently when Dr. Diwan discusses the evidence for spinal fusions. You will have a bunch of people and uh, some patients who are extremely interested and they want to know each and every aspect of the science. On the other hand, you'll have patients who walk into your office and say, don't tell me all of that. I'm struggling do what you need to do. But you can't assume which patients will fall into which group, meaning you can't go into these conversations with any preconceived notions. Now, you would think that the former group of people would be professorial, would be academics, but I can give you first-hand information to let you know that I have had professors of medicine that come into my office with degenerative scoliosis say, don't tell me about the signs. Don't tell me about the risks. Don't tell me about the benefit. I can see my spine is falling apart, is crooked. Fix it, please. 
just don't talk to me about any of that. So you have to respond to individuals as to what their requirement is. You cannot have a blanket way that you treat every person. Everybody needs to be treated differently. While Dr. Diwan isn't aware of research exploring whether patient mindset is associated with better outcomes after a spinal fusion, he certainly knows which group he prefers to deal with. We enjoy treating the patients who ask us less questions. It is a bigger torture to deal with more difficult, you know, as surgeons, if we talk less, we are more comfortable. Well, that is the truth. It is more fun treating people who come to you with an expectation and have the faith and confidence in you. And that is across the board. It's not just in spinal fusion surgery. It's in a day-to-day interaction at a GP level to everything else. It's just normal human interaction. Performing a spinal fusion carries risk, just like any other surgery. Working near the complex nerves and blood vessels of the spine poses an additional level of risk, which can be minimized somewhat thanks to the development of minimally invasive strategies and advancements in computer-aided navigation. But the unpredictability of how the body will respond to the procedure poses an additional challenge. I have full control where anatomically we are placing screws or putting bone grafts or cages in. What we don't have control is on how that particular body or what their immune system or what their mind system will respond to that transgression that has just occurred. Nobody has control of that. That is the unknown. Hopefully in the future, if we can figure that out beforehand, we'll be in a better position to improve the outcome. There is also a lack of evidence around what to do for patients who elect not to go ahead with the procedure, which further complicates the decision-making process. There is also an incredible lack of evidence as to what do you do for a person who continues to suffer. So that alternative is also not very clear. Whether you should prescribe drugs, if you do drugs, which type of drugs, if you do injection, which type of that, do you do spinal cord stimulator? We know that the spinal cord stimulator evidence is now dropped off and the reviews show that there is no strong evidence that they help Uh, radiofrequency ablations, all of those things, none of them stack up when you start dealing with people who have pain of a chronic nature. What advice do you have for GPs and their patients who might be considering a spinal fusion? One thing that may help uh, the GPs a lot is when they face a patient who is in a dilemma, right? So normally my broad stroke, high-level advice is that choosing a lumbar spinal fusion or making deciding whether to get it done or not done is like trying to get married. You know, if you're in doubt, don't do it. So I think that is kind of a blanket uh, decision. But at the same time, if you feel you have come to an end point where nothing else is helping you, and if there is definitive pathology which is described in the notes, that can be addressed, definitely. Go ahead, encourage them to do it. And they are doubting whether they should go with that particular surgeon. There's no no harm in getting a second opinion. And so I think second opinions, even third opinion should be encouraged. And that will sort of optimize things. So any situation where you have for a chronic condition, if you've been offered 
surgery as a first option you can always wait and get a second opinion there's no harm in doing As mentioned at the top of the podcast, the rate of spinal fusions in Australia has increased dramatically over the last two decades. Professor Ian Harris, an orthopaedic surgeon and researcher from the University of New South Wales, says there are several reasons for this. First of all, there is an ageing of the population, but even age-adjusted, it's increasing. So that's not well, the complete reason. There are more so-called indications for spine surgeries. Uh, many surgeons now are doing fusions as on top of decompressions, whereas previously they would have been doing decompressions alone. That's one reason. But also the techniques of doing them have developed in a way that there's now lots of different ways you can do spine fusions. And you can do them from the front, you can do them from the back, you can do them from the side, you can do them from the front and the back. There's lots of fancy implants that we can put in now. And lots of people are being taught how to do this. And so they have this tool and they're applying it in a way that they feel is is appropriate. It's also has to be said that it's fairly well remunerated in the private sector at least or workers' compensation sector. You recently published a paper that showed the rate of privately funded spinal fusions in New South Wales had increased fourfold over the past two decades, which is much larger than the increases seen for publicly funded procedures or procedures funded by workers' compensation. Why do you think there was such a difference between the public and privately funded rates? The generous explanation we put in the paper was the logical explanation, which is either patients in the private sector are being overserviced, patients in the public sector are being underserviced, or both. And they're, they're the sort of possibilities to explain that. But this actually spins off from previous research we did uh, covering the period, I think, 96 to 2006. So this covers sort of the the, the time period since then. But in that previous study, we looked not only at how many cases were done in the public, we looked at how many cases were put on the public waiting list. And that's a different thing. And so that's a reflection of how many public patients surgeons think need to have a fusion because they could be putting, you know, hundreds on the waiting list and they're just not getting done because there's not enough uh, resources, but they weren't. They weren't. They were hardly putting anybody on the waiting list. So, what other explanations are there? Previous studies showed us uh, what I think was another cause for the increase, because when you looked at the private rate of surgery, it was reasonably it was increasing, but not increasing by a whole lot. Whereas the public spine fusion rate was flat until around two thousand two thousand one, and then it completely took off at a you know, 45-degree angle or whatever, and, it, and it, there was a, a vast increase from that date on in the private sector. And we, it didn't take us long to work out what that probably was because that's when MRI scans were included in the rebate. So MRI scans suddenly became widely available at reasonable cost. Armed with their MRI scans, surgeons could see changes, age-related or otherwise, more easily than ever before compared to x-rays or on CT scans. And as some surgeons are wont to do, they want to fix what they can see. There's another great study done in the, in the US, it's a while ago now, but they randomised patients in primary care who presented with back pain, first 
presentation with back pain to either a plain x-ray or an MRI scan. Now, we know these days that we shouldn't do any imaging on patients who present with low back pain because it's an x-ray is a waste of time unless there's any red flags and an MRI is always going to show something. It doesn't necessarily help the person. But this study, they said, well, we're either going to do a plain x-ray or an MRI. And after that, it's whatever, whatever the doctor thinks. You know, they, they can manage them however they they feel is necessary. And then they just looked at 12 months later how the patients were going. And they found no difference between the two groups regarding how much back pain they had. Um, but they did find a difference between the two groups in that the group that was randomized to have an MRI first rather than x-ray were much more likely to have had surgery in the meantime. Does this reiterate the importance of educating clinicians around the proper use of imaging and back pain? Yeah, and educating patients because patients get scared when they read those MRI reports. I, I, you know, even an MRI of a knee or something like that, which to me is a pretty, pretty benign thing, and there isn't a whole lot of bad things you're going to find in there. But patients come in and they're horrified by the sometimes two-page report they'll see on an MRI, of an MRI scan of the spine, or at least a full page listing all of the things that were found. It would be an interesting study, and I know researchers who are trying to do this study, to have MRI reports randomised between the full page listing every level and all the degenerative findings and bulging discs which are present everywhere and annular tears, degenerative facet joints and osteophytes, have that report or a report that says no changes beyond those expected for a patient this age, Mm. full stop. Um, And then I'm sure patients would react very differently to those two reports, Um, and I think surgeons might even react differently to those two kinds of reports as well. How do you balance the need to use imaging to rule out potential pathologies, knowing surgeons can jump at shadows and operate on normal age-related changes? I think that's a good question because there's a low threshold for us to just think, well, if I get a scan, then I'm covered. You know, I don't, I don't have to worry about what this patient has, but certainly you don't need to do it in the acute situation because if the patient doesn't have any neurology or any signs of any other pathology, there's, there's no harm in waiting and 80 or 90% of the patients will be better in a, a days or weeks. So there's certainly no need to, to waste resources and unnecessarily worry the patient for those cases. But sometimes there's grey areas. If if you do end up doing an investigation, and normally it's an MRI scan by and large, if you do end up doing an MRI scan of the of the lumbar spine, you've got to jump on the results, and you've got to reassure the patient if those results are not significant that they are not significant that they that they are normal for the age, because uh, you know obviously just having a scan doesn't hurt anyone. It's what you do with the results that can harm people. What other advice does Professor Harris have for GPs managing patients with back pain? Patients with acute back pain, it's it's exceedingly common. You can certainly screen them for red flags. But if this patient has nonspecific low back pain and it's acute, then the prognosis is pretty good. Most of them get better. But the patients need to be educated and the GPs need to be educated that Rest isn't necessarily the best thing for them. Maintaining activity is arguably better. 
and that simple analgesics reassurance, education that it's okay. It's very common to get back pain. It'll get better nearly every time and not to put them on long-term opioids and not to use what I call fancy drugs, things like pregabalin, which has, has no role for back pain or sciatica or leg pain. It's just, it, all it does is increase the, the side effects. And often a patient with acute back pain will just need reassurance above everything else. Patients with chronic back pain are a lot harder. Again, you've still got to screen the patient and make sure they don't have some significant uh, pathology or, or something that's affecting their neurological status. But I think there needs to be an understanding that back pain, uh, chronic back pain often carries, or patients with it often carry a lot of psychological and social uh, baggage as well, which needs to be unpacked. Thanks for joining me today on the Rheumatology Republic in Conversation podcast. The Rheumatology Republic in Conversation podcast is brought to you by the Medical Republic team. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify and iTunes. Check out the Medical Republic podcast to keep up with the general practice of healthcare and running a successful clinic. But for the latest news and views about rheumatology, check out the Rheumatology Republic magazine or head to our website, www.rheuma.com.au. Thanks for tuning in.